Hey everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brendan Carr. Today's guest is John Zerotsky. John has led more than 150 teams in designing products for Google Ventures. John also writes about design for The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Wired. John is also a co-author of Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. Sprint is featured in the Navy Reading Program. In this episode, John tells us why brainstorming doesn't work, how to manage your environment to maximize your willpower, and the power of failure both in venture capital and in life. So John, you are working with very agile tech startups at Google Ventures. Why do you think an organization like the Navy or a nonprofit would benefit from the ideas in your book? Yeah, I think that the Navy, big corporations, nonprofits, they're interested in design sprints for the same reasons that startups are. You know, the world is full of uncertainty. Um, and when you're in a team environment and you're thinking about doing something new, whether it's a new product, a new uh, customer base, even a new process, it's impossible to know how it's going to turn out before you do it. So the traditional approach has been to try to plan really well, right? Do all this analysis, all this research, make the perfect plan and then execute on it. But I think as as the world has gotten more complicated, people are realizing that that doesn't cut it. That doesn't always work. And and those problems are are really magnified in a startup environment where they have they're they're building entirely new things and they usually have very limited time. So the design sprint is a way for teams to test their ideas. So to use the you know, tools from design, uh, prototyping, customer testing to evaluate their ideas and make sure they're on the right track before they commit to them. Nice. Nice. And John, how, how did this all start for you? Was it, was it jazz music? Was it the school newspaper? How did you wind up <laughs> in this path? Yeah, I'm sure that the, the, I'm sure that jazz music had something to do with it. Um, but it actually, it, it, it kind of began for me with doing design at a newspaper. That was my very first design job. Uh, and it was a daily paper. And so the design cycle took exactly one day because that was all the time that we had. And as I moved from there into a tech startup, and then uh, we were acquired by Google and I worked on big teams at Google. I worked at YouTube on the first ever redesign of YouTube. I saw the design cycle getting longer and longer. And I saw us leaning more on these traditional approaches of, of planning and research that I mentioned to try to get everything right because the stakes are really high. And I wanted to get back to that, that one day cycle. I wanted to get back to that, that approach of do the best you can, um, but see how it works in the real world. You know, knowing that, that, you know, plans are, all plans sound great in abstract, but the, the real test is when they're sort of exposed to oxygen. Um, so I always kind of had that in the back of my mind. And at the same time, I was working at, at Google Ventures. I worked there from, from uh, 2011 to 2017. And my role was to help the companies that we invested in use design to solve their problems, whatever problems they had as a business. And I realized that I couldn't have all the answers. I couldn't know what every company needed to do. I couldn't be the expert on everything. So I had these two ideas or two challenges, really, this idea that uh, I didn't know everything and I couldn't know everything, but I wanted to help dozens, hundreds of different companies. And on the other hand, I had witnessed this, this 
change in my career where design process just kept taking longer and longer. And I felt like it was getting me further and further away from where the rubber meets the road, you know, the real world, the customers, what's actually going to, going to work. Um, and at that moment I met Jake Knapp who had come up with this design sprint process at Google in a very nascent form. He was running it with teams there. Um, and we recruited him to join Google ventures and we just began running design sprints. It seemed like this kind of perfect way to bring the power of design to lots of companies and to help these companies solve their problems uh, in a very scalable, rapid uh, way. Yeah, scalable and rapid are, are key ideas there. And yeah. one thing that you touched on right at the beginning of the book is that the phrase brainstorming, which is so popular, is not really scalable or rapid. Can you, can you share more <laughs> about your thoughts on that? Yeah, brainstorming is just one of these sticky ideas that will not go away. Uh, and I think it's probably because it's really fun to do. Uh, it sounds cool. Uh, it looks cool. You know, the idea that um, that you're just in a room and everybody's shouting out ideas and there's no judgment and, you know, the crazier the idea, the better. Uh, it's very it's very appealing. And, and I've been in plenty of brainstorms. But but we found again and again that brainstorms don't produce good ideas. They produce a lot of ideas and they they produce creative ideas, but they don't produce good ideas. And and because everybody knows about brainstorming, because it's such a sticky idea, that became sort of a fallback uh, approach for a lot of people who, who were feeling stuck and needed to generate ideas. Like, let's do a brainstorm. Um, but, but I don't think it works. Uh, I've seen too many cases uh, of where it fails. And so in a design sprint, there's no brainstorming. Um, instead, we have individuals work on their own quietly to generate their own ideas and then those ideas are evaluated and discussed in a very structured way by the team so it feels a little bit unnatural at times but we found it's it's a way better approach to coming up with ideas yeah and to have to have so, uh, a guiding drive and have those rails on the system can be huge when you've got a lot of big personalities or people who are excited about the ideas too really helps yeah and there's a sweet spot um, when it comes to generating ideas. You need to give people time to really think through their ideas and not just shout out the first thing that pops into their head. But you don't want to give people too much time. You know, if you have too much time, you kind of you get into the weeds, you obsess over the details, you drive yourself nuts with the what ifs, uh, self-doubt starts to creep in. Um, and so what we found with, with design sprints is that giving people a total of about an hour to work individually, sometimes we call it uh, working alone together. So you're working as an individual quietly, but you're, you're in a group environment. Everybody's in the same room, heads down on their own paper. It's about an hour uh, that's made up of four structured steps to help people kind of build up to capturing that final idea in sketch form we feel like that's really the sweet spot. That's the way to do it, about that hour. Yeah. Cool. Well, and, and it, that's based on our experience, mm -hmm. which is mostly creating products, you know, creating software products, mobile apps, websites, that type of thing. But we've seen people, especially since the book came out, we've seen people all around the world apply this process to 
all kinds of different things. Um, we've we've gotten stories from sprints at uh, insurance companies and in, in different branches of the U.S. military and uh, in nonprofits. And this idea of working alone together to generate ideas uh, seems to have kind of a, I don't want to say universal uh, success, but but it does feel like we've we've come up with a, a formula that works well in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, and you talk about all the, all the different applications, and you are so much a, a media person. You're you're written all over the place. You're in Ink. You're on Medium, Wired, um, all these places. And now everyone is sort of their own little media company. You know, everyone's on social media, or everyone's on um, YouTube, or blogging somewhere, or something like that. So for people who want to make media, or even for us with this podcast, is, do you see a way to to work this kind of design process into something like that? Definitely. I think that right now is such an amazing time to be in media, to, to be creating new things and trying to find an audience for them, because uh, you can use the design sprint process, you can use um, approaches to testing your ideas in a very uh, scalable way. You can start with, um, you know, just to give you an example from the work that we did with design sprints, you can start by tweeting about it or posting little snippets on, on LinkedIn of specific components or ideas that might be interesting. And you'll get feedback on those. Some people say that's, that's amazing. Some people say you're an idiot, but you can, uh, you can take that feedback and you can, you can move on and then you can write an article about it or you can write a blog post about it. Um, and you can go through that process again and then you can write a book. You don't have to, to jump from, the kernel of an idea straight into that perfect finished form of a book or, or a video or, or whatever it might be, or a podcast. Um, the tools that we have now allow us to create and then to distribute and, and test um, ideas and content uh, in this really nice iterative way. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Cool. And John, um, one of the things that the book has going for it is it, it, your book is well-written. It's As business books go, it's, it's accessible, and you start a lot of chapters with stories. And one of them yeah. is, is the, uh, the Apollo 13 launch and how yeah. they had to get their priorities right and start at the end. How, how can we make sure that when we're doing any sort of design or planning that we're starting at the end? Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like it's almost too obvious to just say, think about the goal before you get into it. Um, but that's, that's kind of, um, that's kind of the secret. You know, I think that because it feels so obvious, we don't often take the time to dig into it and say, what are we really trying to do here? And what are the things that could trip us up along the way? In that second part of that discussion, you know, where could we go wrong? Where could we get off track? That's actually really valuable because that points the way to, what we should build in our design sprint, what we should prototype and test, because it can help us answer those questions. It can help us anticipate those things that might go wrong before we encounter them in the real world. So we spend the entire first day of a design sprint actually talking about the problem, trying to understand it. And we don't just write down the goal, we actually map out sort of the process that a customer or that a, a stakeholder is gonna go through if you know, if we succeed, if if this works in the end. So let's say we're working on um, uh, one example from the book is um, working with Slack 
which makes the online tool for teams to communicate and collaborate together. And they were they were trying to reach non-technology companies. They had done really well with tech companies, but they knew they needed to continue to branch out and expand. Um, but there's all these questions about, like, do people even know what chat rooms are? Do people, have people used these things before? Do they seem valuable? Do they understand how it would fit into their organization? Um, and they could have just gone and spent a bunch of money on an advertising campaign, but they had all these, these big questions. So we started at the end with Slack and said, Look, the goal is to get non-technology companies to understand and see the value of Slack so that they'll try it in their organization. But let's make our prototype be all about uh, testing those questions and assumptions along the way. So by making that map, it really gave us you know, sort of, uh, it revealed the, the path that we needed to follow to sort of pass all those obstacles on the way to reaching our goal. Yeah, and, and you talk about a customer or a stakeholder, you, you kind of draw both. And, and for us in the Navy, we're, we're thinking a lot more of, of a stakeholder, an end user, but we often yeah. don't even think in those terms. Could you explain how to identify who that person is or how to keep them in mind through a process of, of planning something out? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes from, it's really about visualizing and walking through how whatever you're creating or whatever you're, you're doing or changing is going to unfold in the real world, how you think it is going to, how it's going to work. Um, so, and you might need to bring in different kinds of experts who know um, how it affects them, how it affects uh, somebody in the field versus somebody in an office. Um, for uh, a lot of the work that, that we did with startups, it was fairly straightforward in the sense that it's a, you know, it's a customer of a certain type who's making a certain decision. But we worked on a lot of healthcare projects as well. Um, we worked on one with a company called Flatiron Health that um, makes software for cancer clinics who were recently acquired by Roche. And um, in the problem that we were trying to solve, they actually had, we learned all this by talking to their team who consists of, of engineers and doctors and all sorts of different people. We learned that they have for really different and really important stakeholders or customers. They have the physician, of course, and they have the patient. Those are sort of the two obvious ones. But they also had the, um, the research coordinator um, who would actually be the person in the office who's figuring out, okay, is this uh, patient uh, a candidate for a clinical trial? Um, can we give them access to a, a drug that they might not otherwise have access to? And a nurse who is working in the clinical environment to, um, you know, to, to work with the physician um, in terms of giving care to that, that patient. So by talking to the different experts inside of Flatiron Health, who came from this world, who came from the oncology world, we're able to uncover you know, who are the actual people involved in this. If we say, hey, here you go, oncologists, we made a new, a new software thing for you, we made a new tool for you, um, who are they going to have to convince or who are they going to have to to collaborate with to actually use this thing? Um, and that's the process that that I think works well in any environment. Um, that combination of sort of visualizing how is this actually going to be used? And then when there are are blank spots or blind spots pulling in the experts who can help to to shed light there. Yeah. And, and I can see how that could work in in any environment, especially the kind of things that we do too, you know, we're pulling technical experts. You know, I might be designing something, but it's going to hit the maintainer at the end, and I need to talk to them 
and to bring all these players together. Very cool. Yeah, and then once you know who those people are, then you can start to, to focus on which ones are associated with the greatest risks or unknowns at that point in the project. So in this, this project with Flatiron Health, obviously the physician is a critical important, you know, critically important customer in this situation. But we, we decided that at that stage in the project, it was actually the research coordinator who was going to, um, who was more important uh, in terms of moving the project forward. So that was the person who we were going to have to convince to incorporate this new thing into the workflow. They're already using existing software tools. They, they already have the way that they do this. And if we wanted to create something better, new, different for them, we were going to need to convince them first. If we couldn't get them to use it, it would never reach the physician. It would never reach the nurse and it would never reach the patient. So once you know who the players are, then you can say, all right, who do we need to focus on now and who can we focus on later? Yeah, and this seems this seems a constant struggle of, of leadership in general is to find the right people and to make sure that there is buy-in with them. In this in this process, how would you how would you go about including those people to make sure that they are bought in from the get-go? Yeah, so we've been talking about customers just now, but but I think you're asking about internal stakeholders, you know, um, leaders, uh, team members that you might be collaborating with. Um, in a design sprint, we try to include the real team, the core team of people who's going to be responsible for making these decisions and executing on whatever this, this project is. Um, we don't subscribe to the idea that um, when you're trying something new, you should have a, a special team that goes off to a special room and does a special pro- uh, process. You know, I think design sprints kind of look that way, but... Um, but what we try to do is bring this, this way of working to an existing team. So we think it's really important to have the real team together uh, working on the sprint. There are a couple other critical roles. Um, there's uh, what we call the decider, so the decision maker who has the ultimate authority to either uh, green light something or to shut something down. Um, and one of the big challenges, if you don't include that person, is a team can could spend a week and, and, and have an amazing experience and uh, come up with the, what they believe is a great solution that's been tested with customers, but for some reason they didn't anticipate, the decision maker says, nope, I don't want to do it that way. So we always insist on including the decision maker, um, ideally for, for the entire five-day design sprint, um, although that's not always practical. So in those cases, we'll have the decider make cameo appearances, sort of come in at these key moments to um, make sure that we understand the problem correctly, to review the ideas that we sketched, to make the final decision on what we're going to put in the prototype, and then to review those research results at the end of the week. So for us, if we want to get that decider, and that decider is usually a busy person, a commanding officer, a big project manager, how do we sell them on participating when they have so many demands to meet? Yeah. I think it depends on, on what's important to that person or, or maybe what struggles they're facing, what, you know, what challenges they have. Um, we've worked with a lot of teams where the decision maker um, kind of feels this, they feel this pressure. They feel the weight of, of being responsible for making a decision that's going to affect a lot of people. Um, and for them, a design sprint can often be a way out. It can, be, um, it can, it can provide sort of a pressure re- release to this, this weight that has been building up on them. Um, so that's, that's one approach. 
um, other leaders or decision makers are very risk averse. They're they're afraid of, um, you know, rightfully so. They don't want to they don't want to screw up. They don't want to waste time and money on something that's not going to be successful. Um, and and those are the same types of leaders who will often look to extensive, deep research and analysis to try to get the plan totally perfect to make sure every T is crossed and I is dotted before they move forward with execution. And for them, the design sprint can kind of be a, a faster, cheaper, more effective way to, uh, to identify those risks and, and eliminate them before moving forward. So it kind of depends on, on who the leader is and what they value. Other times, honestly, um, you can sort of appeal to that person's care for their team. You know, you can say, hey, look, we all know that this is something that we're going to need to figure out. We've been struggling with it. What we're doing is not working. Um, we think this might be a better way. Um, we'd love your support in in, in trying it. Um, and particularly, you know, for for the types of leaders that we we all hope we get to to work for, that approach can can work really well too. Yeah, I can totally see that being being a value in the Navy. It's it's so much of our ideals about how we should lead that we want to be mm. there and engage with our teams and looking out for them and being active in the mm. evolution of their work and their ideas. So, so cool. That's a great, great system. I have a question from, from one, of our, one of our people, actually, at my command. He asks, um, what's the most interesting problem you took from discovery to solution with this process? That's a good question, and it's really hard to say because uh, I've probably done about 150 different sprints uh, in my years at Google Ventures. Um, for just sheer sort of novelty and interestingness, it's really hard to top the project that we did with Savvy Oak, which was to design the personality for this robot that was um, designed to operate in, in hotels. So uh, it's actually the, the first story in the book, um, and I, I won't repeat it in its entirety, but th this team of, of roboticists had identified an opportunity um, to create a robot that could help make deliveries in hotels. So at hotels, uh, the same times that the front desk is busy, you know, people checking in, people checking out, are often the times that guests up in their room need things. They need an extra towel, an extra pillow, they forgot their toothbrush at home, they need something. And so the staff is often torn between, do we go and help this guest who, who's calling us from their room or do we stay here at the, at the front desk and you serve the people who are here? So th the team at Savvy Oak thought, uh, what if we created a robot to help with those deliveries? And they had been working in robotics forever. They were highly competent, very technical, very experienced. And they had actually, by the time we met them, they had created a functional prototype of this robot. Uh, you could put a, a towel or a toothbrush in the little hatch on top of the robot at the front desk. You could type in a room number, and then it could actually navigate there on its own. It had a map of the hotel programmed into its uh, little robot brain. Uh, it was capable of riding the elevator. It, it would avoid collisions. Uh, you know, basically a self-driving robot. Um, and it could it could successfully make these deliveries. And they had lined up a pilot program uh, with a hotel in the San Francisco Bay Area. But they had held off on giving the, the robot any type of personality. They were afraid that if they made it seem too friendly or too human, that people would try to talk to it 
and then they'd be disappointed or confused when it didn't talk back or it didn't understand what they were saying. Uh, and and we one thing we talked about in the sprint was how spoiled we'd become watching science fiction movies and reading books where we have this idea that robots are like C-3PO or they're like WALL-E and they have feelings and they have hopes and dreams and all this stuff. So they were really afraid that they'd have this robot that was functionally perfect, but kind of weirded people out or just, you know, caused them to be, to be confused. And, and the robot, instead of being a value to the hotel would actually be a detriment. Mm. Um, so we did this sprint together to try to figure out what kind of personality the robot should have. So we sketched all different ideas for uh, if it should have a face, what sorts of sounds it should make. Um, and then we actually we built a prototype. So we took the existing, the functional robot, and we modified it to have these elements of personality. And we ran a test with five actual um, customers um, in the hotel um, de- making a delivery and watching to see how they reacted when they met the robot for the first time. Did they like it? Did they think it was creepy? Did they find it confusing? Uh, and it ended up, uh, we were fortunate that it, it worked out really well. People really liked the robot. So we, we kind of, we hit the nail on the head. But, but even, if we, even if the specific prototype that we had built wasn't successful, you know, even if they, you know, people didn't like the way that the, the robot behaved, it still would have been a success for the team because they still would have known um, what not to do um, and, and avoided this big risk of kind of squandering their their one opportunity with this pilot program by by creating an, an unpleasant experience for for the hotel guests. So uh, there, there's a lot more about that in the book. Um, and there's even uh, if you look it up online, there's some videos uh, where you can actually see the robot in action. But I have to say, uh, of all the projects I've done, that's that's one of the most interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the video, but I I am trying to picture the happy dance that it does after a successful mission, and I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it, so the, the robot is basically, uh, it looks kind of like a fancy trash can. You know, it's about um, three and a half feet tall, and it's kind of cylindrical, and it just motors along. And so what it does for the happy dance is it just sort of pivots back and forth, kind of does like a twist move, oh, nice. if you will. So, but yeah, it, it's pretty cute. Uh, it's worth checking out the video. Yeah. And John, you, you talked about how even if that project had failed, that would still be a success because people would be moving forward. And I think in a lot of a lot of organizations, a lot of cultures, particularly the military, we often get very risk averse. But I know mm-hmm. that for you, especially in venture capital, you see the benefits of taking big risks and and seeing how that can play out in, in exponential gains. If you you know if you got a big portfolio and you got a Facebook type company, you went big. Um, so how how can people conceptualize that value of failing? If, if they're not familiar with these kind of ideas. Yeah, so you're totally right. In venture capital, the upside is huge, the potential upside. And that's, that's kind of the essence of investing in these risky ideas. Um, but there's a, there's a really um, scary downside to it, which is that if you fail in a startup environment, not only did your idea not work out, not only did your product not work out, but you're probably out of money. Because as a startup, you're funded for a very specific amount of time to basically go out and test your idea in the market and prove that you're on the right track. Um, so, so you kind of have this double, this double failure of the product didn't work and now we're out of money and we're going we're gonna to shut down, um, which 
which is you know a really hard thing for people to swallow when they've poured their their energy and their time into this project. Um, so with the design sprint process, we're giving people a way to, if they are going to fail, we're giving a, them a way to, to reach that point of failure in five days instead of in three months or six months or a year or how much, however much time. And they can actually run sprints over and over and over and you know they fail one week, they can try something different the next week, they might fail again, but bit by bit they can start to chip away at, um, okay, now we understand this part of the problem, or it turns out we were solving the wrong thing in the first place, we're gonna, we're gonna sort of uh, adjust our direction and continue to work toward um, a successful outcome. Uh, I think that a lot of the teams we work with, very much like you're saying, are afraid of failing. Uh, even when they're a, a startup that, that nobody's ever heard of. Um, but the nice thing about failing in the context of a design sprint is that you're only failing in front of five people. Yeah. You're failing in front of five customers in a very controlled way. And, and at the same time, those five customers are, are enough to give you a high level of confidence in what you've learned. If those five people are carefully chosen, if they, if they're representative of the customer that you're building for, um, you can trust that their reactions will, that they reflect what, what more people like them uh, will do when they experience whatever you're working on. So the way that we, we test prototypes in a design sprint is this really great combination of being very fast, five days instead of months or years, but also very safe in that you're not failing in the market or on a, on a broad scale, you're failing with five specific people. Yeah, and, and when you're in that process of building it up to, how do you protect against giving somebody kind of a, kind of a halo effect? Like, oh, well, well, you know, Joe's been on a great run lately and he's got all these great ideas and, and we don't want to be biased towards just saying, okay, do everything that Joe is coming up with right now. How does the system protect from that? Yeah, that's actually one of the challenges with brainstorming um, is that there's there's a lot of social dynamics that come into play. You might have somebody who's the boss or somebody who is known to be creative um, or somebody who is just really a good orator, somebody who's, who's good at, at speaking um, extemporaneously in front of a group. Um, and then when it comes time to make decisions, you have all those issues over again. You know, does a does a, a sort of low-level team member go against what their yeah. what their boss is saying um, for purposes of having a healthy discussion, or do they, you know, keep quiet and, and just go, um, you know, go with the flow? Um, so we do a bunch of things. The the process that we go through on Tuesday when we sketch ideas, and Wednesday when we decide which of those ideas to prototype, is very structured, and it's designed to eliminate a lot of the problems that we see these social dynamics with groups trying to do these things together so on tuesday when we sketch the sketches are actually kept anonymous and that's part of the reason why we think sketching is is so valuable in this context is you can work on your own idea you can sketch it out it might be a little storyboard showing how something's going to work or the layout of a product a piece of software Um, but you don't put your name on it Uh, we post them on the wall so we might have eight or 10 or 12 different ideas. And we encourage people to give their ideas a name, give them sort of a a catchy title or a handle that we can uh, refer to the idea by, but there are no names. And then on Wednesday, when we review those ideas, we don't 
reveal who created the ideas until the very, very end. Um, after everybody's had a chance to look at them, to vote on the parts that they think are, are best, are most successful, and we've, we've selected the ones that we're gonna put into our prototype, then we sort of open it up and we say, okay, who sketched this one, and is there anything else we should know about it? Is there anything that we missed or misunderstood in our discussion of it that you wanna share with us? Um, and that way of working is a little bit unnatural. It's kind of weird. It's, it's different than how things work. You know, it's different than business as usual. Um, but we found that it works really, really well. Yeah. And, and something about the, like the dispassionate looking at a set of stickers on a wall and knowing, okay, this one's got a lot of stickers. That's, that's popular. That's something there's a, there's a big difference from that and like hearing actual human voices and, and all the dynamics that, that clash in something like that. Yeah, totally. I think you know, looking at dots that are on a piece of paper um, has a certain objectivity to it. Um, but also doing that, doing that evaluation in the context of what we talked about earlier, understanding the goal and the map and who's actually going to be using this thing, who's actually going to be encountering this thing in, in the world. Um, it allows you to make decisions not just about what sounds cool or sounds exciting, but really what's going to help us get past this problem? What's going to help us reach this goal? What's going to help us answer this question that we're trying to answer this week in this sprint? Excellent. Yeah. John, could you tell us about your next project, your new book? Yeah. So uh, Jake Knapp and I um, have written an, another book together. It's called Make Time. And it is about helping people redesign their days to make time for the things that matter to them. Uh, there are so many defaults that exist in our world, and some of those come from technology. Uh, by default, your smartphone has email on it. Uh, you, you know, most people have Facebook or Twitter or something like that installed on their phone. Uh, a lot of notifications are turned on, but those defaults also extend to the workplace. By default, you're expected to check your email first thing in the morning and, and respond as quickly as possible. Uh, all meetings default to 30 or 60 minutes, and uh, it's expected that everybody involved in the project is going to be in that meeting. And th there are reasons why all these defaults are the way they are, but um, they don't always serve us. They don't always lead to us um, spending our time in the ways that we want to. Um, and so a big theme with make time is encouraging people to question those defaults um, and, and by making a few small changes to their environment and their devices and, and the ways that they operate, they can actually free up a lot of time. They don't have to rely on willpower to say, you know, okay, I'm not going to check Facebook today. I'm going to, I'm going to make time for something else. Um, we encourage them to do things like um, log out of Facebook or remove Facebook from their phone as an experiment and see what that does for their time. So the book is uh, sort of half memoir and half how-to guide. Uh, it has a lot of stories about our own struggles with these things. Um, we, Jake and I both worked in corporate environments. You know, we worked at Google, big company with lots of meetings and lots of emails. Um, and, and we came up with these ideas to help ourselves make time for what we wanted to do. And then the how-to side of it is um, 
sort of like a cookbook of more than 80 different recipes. We call them tactics, very specific things like the idea of logging out of a, you know Facebook or Twitter or an app that, that really you find difficult to resist um, that people can use. And we sort of walk people through the process of figuring out which of those tactics are best for them, um, trying them, experimenting with them, reflecting on which ones work best so that they can they can continue to improve uh, and make things better tomorrow. Yeah, this, things like logging out are, I think are crucial to human behavior in general. Have, have you ever read um, Predictably Irrational or heard of Dan Ariely? Yeah, I have read that book and a couple other of uh, Dan Ariely's books. I, I really like them. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's an amazing guy. I interviewed him two days ago. And, wow, uh, great. Yeah, yeah, amazing guy. And he's, he's saying that a theme of so much of his work now is to give people sort of a friction to the thing they're trying not to do and an ease yeah. to the thing that they are trying to do. So it may be easy to you know, text um, money into a bank account, but if you want to take it out, you've got to get on a bus, go fill out paperwork, <laughs> wait an hour, and then go take it back so that people yeah. who are struggling financially can, can have a, a friction to doing the wrong thing, but an ease to doing the right thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really good point. Uh, Jake and I, working in the tech industry, um, we worked on, on apps, on products that are... Um, that are very sticky, that are very compelling, very distracting. Jake worked on Gmail. I worked at YouTube. And uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is just how much effort and time and focus goes into removing those barriers. Yeah. You know, the makers of, of YouTube or of Twitter or of Facebook, they want their apps to be as simple and as friction-free as possible. They want it to be easy for you to use their apps because that's how they succeed as a company. It's not that they're nefarious or evil or trying to trying to, to take advantage of us, but it's it's the incentive that they have is to um, make their products as as easy as possible. And so one of the critical principles to sort of taking back our time and taking back our attention is to create barriers to actually make it more difficult for us to to do the things that we don't want to be doing. So um, one kind of extreme example of that is um, having what we call a distraction-free phone. So having a phone that has um, doesn't have any apps on it that have an infinite supply of content. So we call them infinity pools. And they're things like email, um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, yeah. anything you can pull to refresh, and there's always something more there. They're very... Uh, they're very dangerous because they operate on the same principle as like a slot machine. Yes. You know, there's this, this, um, psychology of random rewards. When you do something easy, you pull a handle on a slot machine or you, you swipe an app and most of the time, nothing particularly great happens, but sometimes something really interesting happens, really cool. Um, and they create this very strong feedback loop. So, you know, if you can create barriers to those types of temptations by removing apps, by logging out, um, by keeping your phone in a different room, um, you can really help yourself out. Um, I think that, I don't know if, if you talked about this with, with Dan Ariely, but there's been a lot of research lately on the limits of willpower and this whole idea that some people have willpower and some people don't is really being challenged. Um, and what people are finding is that what looks like willpower oftentimes is just a function of the environment that we operate in. So um, somebody who operates, uh, works in a company that has a great culture and great workplace defaults, 
um, is going to be more successful than somebody who's in a company that doesn't care about those things. Uh, somebody who, um, there was actually a story recently about the, um, the, there's a, a famous experiment in psychology, the marshmallow test. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with this? Mm-hmm. Where uh, kids um, are offered a marshmallow and then the, the researcher says, um, you can either eat this marshmallow now or you'll get another one. You'll get two marshmallows if you wait, I don't know if it's five minutes or 10 minutes. And for a long time, this was held up as an example of, of willpower at work. And they, they, they tracked these children over time and found that the ones who appeared to have more willpower were more successful in life. This, this is a huge finding um, and, and really informed how we thought about willpower. But um, I recently just read this kind of meta-analysis looking back at the research. And uh, the person who did this analysis found that the, um, the likelihood of, of one of these children to grow up and be successful correlated more strongly to the uh, how rich their parents were mm. than it did to their ability to you know resist eating the marshmallow and getting another marshmallow so you know there's all sorts of socioeconomic implications but but for me what was really interesting was that we don't have willpower or not willpower uh, not have willpower we're in environments that enable us to make the choices that are that we want to make that are good for us or not and you know, to the extent that we can help people make those environments for themselves, uh, I think we can help a lot of people. Yeah, you, you can't underestimate the significance of environment. And that, that's one thing Dan touched on big time. He even has mm-hmm. an experiment where they had someone come into a place and right away they, the person gets selected for a lower paying experiment, the, the subject. And then they offer them, you know, hey, if you, if you give me a couple bucks... I'll put you in the higher paying group. So they, they set up the standard that this is an environment where bribes are okay. Okay. Those, those people would go on to cheat in the test. And those people would go on to actually steal money from the experimenters as well. Because wow. it's this indicator of the environment that never happens when they don't set that standard out the gate. Though. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about, um, about changing our environment and creating barriers to distraction. But that's, that's really only one part of uh, what I think it, it takes for us to be able to make time and, and to sort of take control of, of our time and energy. The other half of it is, is being proactive and being positive about what we want to be spending our time on. So a big part of the, the new book, Make Time, is uh, setting what we call a daily highlight. So it, either the night before or the beginning of the day, saying, what's the one thing that I want to make sure that I make time for today? If, if I look back on the day and I ask myself, what was the highlight of my day? What do I want that to be? What do I want that thing to be? And obviously that doesn't become all that you do. That's not practical or, or realistic. But if you can identify one thing that's really important to you, finish a project at work, uh, spend time with your kids, uh, cook dinner, work on a project at home, and you can then rearrange your schedule, you can make choices, you can do things like change the you know, the defaults on your phone to support that, um, it provides both the, the, you know, kind of the mechanism for resisting distraction, but it also provides the, the positive, you know, the, the thing that you're working toward. Um, and so that those two things together, I think are, are a really effective combination. Yeah. Crucial. So in, yeah. in respect for your time, John, I have, I have one last question sure. before I ask my last question though, where's the, where's the best place for people to find you online? 
Yeah. So if you want to learn more about design sprints, go to thesprintbook.com. And if you're interested in, uh, in Make Time, the new book, the website is maketimebook.com. Um, if people want to follow me, um, the best way to do that is on Twitter. My username is Jazzer, J-A-Z-E-R. All right. So, John, my final question is, if you're talking to someone, maybe a junior military leader, and they want to create an environment where this sort of design thinking is going to be natural, it's going to be something that people embrace, what advice would you give to them? I would encourage, uh, I would encourage that person to think about time as the most valuable thing they can give to their team. Um, I think a lot of good decisions flow from that because I think if you recognize that uh, people need time to do creative work, people need time to make good decisions, um, you can start to look for the specific mechanisms or processes or tools or environments that are gonna, going to enable that. Um, but I think that uh, for me, if I, could, um, if I could go into any company or any organization and I could, I could you know, tell the, the leaders of that organization that the most valuable thing they can give their employees is time, I think that, that a lot of good things would happen. Awesome, John, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Everybody, that was John Zerotsky author of Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days, which is featured in the Navy Reading Program. And if you want to help us get more great guests like this on the show, then be sure to give us a review on iTunes, and we'll catch you next time.